Good afternoon, church. It's a pleasure to have the opportunity to speak today. Uh, to begin, I wonder what do you think of when you think about your heart? And I don't mean that muscle in your chest that pumps blood through your veins. <laughs> Some of you are like cholesterol. Uh, but our hearts seem to impact a lot of what we do, right? When considering things like our moral values, our career path, uh, the, the causes we support, perhaps our love life, our next pet, uh, you know, the, whether it's in, explicit or implicit, the message we get from our culture is follow your heart. It will guide you. Do what you feel is right. Do what makes you feel good. Well, what is a heart anyway? And why is it such a big deal? Today we're going to talk a little bit about what the Bible has to say about our hearts. So last week, Pastor Jeremy finished his series in 1 Thessalonians. But before that, Pastor James was preaching through the Beatitudes. And so we're going to continue with that series through the Beatitudes today. Uh, and so if you want to turn to your Bibles, the Beatitudes are in the beginning of chapter 5 of the Gospel of Matthew. That's the first book of the New Testament. And just as a refresher, the Beatitudes are a group of statements in the beginning of Jesus' very famous Sermon on the Mount. And they introduce the speech. Jesus had gone up uh, onto a mountainside outside of Capernaum where he was staying uh, to get away from the crowds. And a bunch of his disciples followed him up there to listen to him teach. And so the Beatitudes in the, in the introduction are our group of proverbial statements that all follow the same format. Blessed are blank, for they will blank. Right? The term blessed in that period carried with it the ideas of happiness and prosperity and favor, to be favored. So when the Bible uses that in the passive voice, it implies that the one doing the blessing is God. And so as Christians, uh, we can think of blessing or blessedness as the joy that comes from being favored by God. And so these proverbs that Jesus gives are general principles that serve as the framework for the rest of the sermon. The principles from which all the other um, exhortations are derived. They illustrate the nature and the lifestyle of someone who is living according to God's will and in a way that is pleasing to God. And so let, let's read it now. I'm going to read through actually all the Beatitudes up to this point to get some context. So I'm going to start in verse 2. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. And then our passage today, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. As we read through these, notice that the Beatitudes form sort of a progression. So those who are broken by their recognition of their poor spiritual state 
In verse 3, will mourn their sin and the sin of the world. And in turn, that will cause them to be humble and gentle. Then true humility will then lead to a hunger and a thirst for righteousness. And one who truly understands the righteousness of God will display God's mercy to others. But then, the beatitude we're looking at today is a bit unique. It's a little different than the others. It's not that it doesn't fit in the progression. Those who have experienced God's mercy and display it to others are pure in a way that others are not. But it seems as though this one is uh, much more than that. Purity of heart seems like it could be the foundation of all the other beatitudes and also the culmination of the other beatitudes. And to understand why this is, we're going to have to delve deeper into the heart. So today, I'm going to have two main points, or really more like two main sections. We're just going to follow the verse. So point number one, the blessing of the pure in heart. The blessing of the pure in heart. And then point number two, the hope of seeing God. The hope of seeing God. And so to understand the blessing of the pure in heart, we need to ask a few questions. The first question, what is the heart anyway? In our culture, often when we think of the heart, we think of our emotions or our feelings. It's this uh, sappy, sentimental, but mysterious thing that decides what our reactions are, our impulses. You know, it's, it even decides our attractions. And deep down inside, though, we think it's good, even though sometimes it can cause us to do crazy things or silly things, to be depressed or to be euphoric or any number of feelings or emotions that we have. We see it as something very powerful, but it's also something that we have no control over, so we can't be held accountable for it. Well, from a biblical perspective, the heart is much more than that. If you look up places where the heart is used or talked about in Scripture, you'll find that you can think and understand and reason in your heart. You can forgive in your heart. You can believe in your heart. You can resist or doubt and commit sin in your heart. And of course, you can love in your heart. So from a biblical perspective, your heart is the source of your inner being. It's the the source, the seat of your mind and your will and your desires. The source of your motivations and your passions. It is out of this that come your thoughts and your emotions and your decisions. So to equate your heart with your emotions is kind of like confusing the fruit with a fruit tree. The fruit is a part of the tree, but it's not the tree. The same is true with your heart. Your emotions and your feelings or your impulses are part of it, but they're not the whole picture. There is one thing that is similar, though, in the way that our culture views the heart and the way that the Bible views the heart. Your heart is driven by what you love. Your heart is driven by what you love. Now, of course, it's not just the emotional love. It's an active, willful, thoughtful, reasoned, and emotional love, but it's love nonetheless. And the thing that you love most is the thing that you will worship. Something we need to remember. 
The thing that you love most is what you will worship. And so I have more to say about this, but first we need to move on to the second question. What does it mean to be pure? What does it mean to be pure? What, what is the passage saying when it says to be pure in heart? Well, the word translated as pure here has the idea of being uncontaminated or unadulterated in the sense of being unmixed. Something that is pure is only one thing without any mixture or pollution from anything else. It's often used of metals like gold, right? When you think of pure gold, right, it doesn't have any substance in it, any other pollutants, any other particles, even any other metals in it. It's just gold. And so you could say that it's completely undivided. It's whole. And so in a religious context, it's often translated as clean. Not clean in the sense of not being dirty, but clean in the sense of being free from any defilement that would prohibit you from worshiping in the temple. So when it came to worshiping in the temple in ancient Israel, there were basically three categories you could be. The categories could be for uh, people, animals, or objects. But uh, you had to be in one of these three categories. You're either unclean, clean, or consecrated. So if you were unclean, you, weren't, you were not able to worship in the temple. You'd have to go through a certain ritual in order to become clean again if you wanted to go and take part in temple worship. And so, again, this didn't necessarily have anything to do with dirt, and it didn't necessarily have anything to do with whether you've done something wrong either. Um, it, it essentially had to do with whether you were defiled in a way that kept you from the temple uh, based on the rules of the Mosaic Law. And so some examples of things that can make you unclean are like touching a dead body or uh, having a certain type of disease or eating certain types of foods. Uh, there are, uh, certain animals were unclean, and so they were not to be used in making sacrifices, that sort of thing. Um, but then if someone was clean, it was, or someone or something was clean, it, it was deemed ritually free of all defilement. Essentially, it didn't, hadn't touched or come into contact with any of those things that made you unclean. And so, clean people were permitted to worship in the temple, and clean objects could be used in the worship of the temple. Then further, if something was consecrated, it was specifically set apart to be used for a certain purpose. So things that were consecrated were like the priests, specially set apart to serve in the temple, or uh, the animals for, or the altar and the animals for the sacrifices, specially consecrated for a certain thing to be used in the temple. But for something to be used in the temple, used for worship or consecrated, it had to first be clean. So the, the temple, if I can backtrack just a bit, the temple was the location of the visible presence of God on earth. So in ancient Israel, their worship was very tangible and tactile. Uh, the temple was the way that the invisible God was manifest in a physical way. So to be admitted into or to be separated from the temple was a very tangible and vivid way of understanding God's presence. And so, of course, we know that the God of the Bible is omnipresent. He's everywhere all at the same time. So he's not confined to a building that people make. But theologically speaking, when we speak of being able to go into God's presence, it's not that you can ever go anywhere where God can't see you. It speaks of the relationship you have with God. You could think of it as whether or not you're on speaking terms. 
I could be in the same room with you, but if we're not on speaking terms, that's going to be a pretty tense and awkward situation. Uh, uh, an analogy that the Bible often uses is the idea of whether or not God's face or his back is turned toward you. If you think about it, kind of the same thing. That the correlation is obvious. If, if, I'm in your, if I'm near you, but my back is turned toward you, right, that's not going to be a fruitful relationship. And so all this ritual and symbolism surrounding the temple, it wasn't meant to just give us a bunch of rules to follow. It was meant to point to a greater truth. All these things were meant to illustrate for us that one could not just go before God any old way you choose. God is holy and perfect in all of his attributes. He is the infinite, all-powerful, all-knowing, perfectly just, perfectly righteous, supreme God of all creation. You don't just enter in any way you want. In a word, he is pure. And his purity is beyond anything that we can even comprehend. And so those who would worship in his presence must also be pure. So as a little aside, this is why we set up the services the way we do. Uh, We try to make everything that we do according to God's word here at New Covenant Baptist Church while we worship. Uh, We read scripture. Our songs are from God's word. We preach God's word and our prayers are modeled according to the prayers that we see in scripture. Uh, We do this because we want to please God and not man and worship him on his terms. And so we focus on the ways that God has instructed us to worship him in the Bible. But in a theological sense, purity is about morality. It's about righteousness. And when this word pure is used in relation to the heart in scripture, this is what it's referring to. And so you could see how the symbolism of the uncontaminated gold or the cleanliness in temple worship creates a fitting backdrop to the metaphor of the purity of one's heart. So the idea of being pure in heart is having a heart that is undefiled by anything that would make it morally unclean or spiritually corrupt. It's un, a heart that is undefiled by anything that would make it morally unclean or spiritually corrupt. In other words, it's a heart that is free from sin. And considering what we know now about what the heart is, a pure heart is one that is morally perfect or righteous in every part of it, in everything that comes out of it. That means more, uh, pure thoughts, pure emotions, pure attitudes, pure attractions, pure impulses, pure feelings, pure desires. Also, and perhaps more foundationally, being pure in heart, like the uncontaminated, undivided gold, means to have an undivided, unrivaled love for God that is not mixed or corrupted or even contested by anything in this world that might draw on our love in worship. And so now that we know what a pure heart is, the third question we should ask is, what does the Bible say about your heart or my heart? So there are literally hundreds of verses in Scripture that talk about the heart. And so it's clear that there's a battle going on in our hearts, a battle between righteousness and wickedness. 
We can choose in our heart to do what is right, or we can choose in our heart to do what is evil. So while we are created with the capacity to do right, every time the Bible talks about the general or normal or morally determinative state of the hearts of human beings, it always speaks in the same way. Uh, you don't have to turn to these places, but I'm going to read you a few examples. So Ecclesiastes 9.3 says, The hearts of the children of man are full of evil, and madness is in their hearts while they live. And after that, they go to the dead. Psalm 3, 1-3 says, The fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt, doing abominable iniquity. There is none who does good. God looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all fallen away. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. Matthew 15, 19 through 20, it says, For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person. Genesis 6, 5 says, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Wow, that's rough. The Bible's evaluation of the hearts of human beings is that they are all constantly, consistently evil. And if you're thinking, well, I know I'm not perfect, but come on now, I don't know about all that. Let me read you one more verse from Jeremiah 17. It says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. This serves as a warning for us that if left to ourselves, our hearts are deceitful. Your heart will lie to you. It will make you think that you're more righteous than you are or better off than you are. In reality, though, even those of us who think we're not that bad, I really don't think there's anyone that would truly admit or truly believe that they are morally perfect, right? And so we can't even meet, this, meet the standards we set for ourselves, can we? Let alone the standard that a perfectly pure and holy God would set up. And so, as the verse says, and as the Bible affirms many times, God will one day judge every person's heart. That's yours and that's mine. So the question is, the last question we have, is if all this is true, how can we possibly ever be pure in heart? It's pretty much impossible. How can we stand before God's judgment at all? Well, actually, it is impossible if it were up to us. However, there is hope. Those of us who are Christians know where I'm going. If you are not a Christian here today, I want you to see that the the solution to this problem is the foundation of our hope. It is the cornerstone of what it means to be a true Christian. It is the gospel. See, if left to ourselves, we have no hope of being saved from God's judgment Uh, And we all would end up receiving the just punishment that our sins deserve. The punishment that we've all just consciously admitted 
we deserve because we don't meet the standard. That punishment is eternity in hell, being apart from the presence of God. But the good news, the wonderful news, is that God himself, because of his great love, provided a way of salvation for us. He fulfilled the standard. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, became a man, God incarnate, in order to fulfill the perfect standard that we could not. He was the only man who ever truly had a pure heart. He came for the purpose of dying as a sacrifice in order to take the punishment that we deserve for our sins on himself as he was nailed to a cross. And then he rose from the grave three days later, conquering sin and death so that he might give us the gift of eternal life by faith. So what that means is that Jesus, through the Holy Spirit, gives us a new heart when we believe. Jesus, through the Holy Spirit, gives us a new heart when we believe. The theological term for this is regeneration. And God promised in the Old Testament several times that he would do this. One example is in Ezekiel 36, 26. It says, And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. Now, God has fulfilled this promise in Christ. And that is why Christians get so excited about the gospel. This is why we find joy in the gruesome, unjust death of an innocent man. Because he did the impossible, what we could not do. He got up from the grave. And he does the impossible in the defiled hearts of human beings every single day. So now, when God judges our hearts, he doesn't see that sinful heart that we were born with. He sees the absolutely pure heart of Jesus Christ. So if you're, if you're not a Christian here today, and you want to know more about how this blessing of a pure heart can be yours, what it means to have faith in Christ, please do not leave here without talking to me or one of the other Christians around you. We would love to talk to you about the gospel. But one thing that all of us need to understand, though, is that this does not mean that in this life, the experience of your heart is going to be pure instantly. So remember, the status of our heart before God instantly becomes pure because Jesus' pure heart is covering ours. And although the new heart that the Holy Spirit gives us is pure, there's a lot of gunk left inside us that still needs to be cleaned out. And so the Holy Spirit progressively cleans out those sins that defile us more and more and, and make us more and more holy as time goes by and make us more and more like Christ. That's called sanctification. And so this process goes on for the rest of our lives while we are still living until we die and are resurrected with Christ with a glorified body that has no more taint or trace of sin. And so in light of this fact, there are a a few practical considerations that uh, I want to talk about in relation to the, the blessing of a pure heart. And so, one, first one, is that our hearts 
can only be defiled by our own sin. Our hearts can only be defiled by our own sin. Now, we live in a fallen world with sin all around us. Sometimes we're tempted uh, by, or tempted to sin by corrupt people or corrupt things in this world. Sometimes people actively sin against us and mistreat us. But this sin around us is not what truly defiles our heart. And you might ask, how can you say that when you, I'm just talking about the world of sin that we live in. How can this sin not defile our hearts? Well, I take the example of our Lord Jesus Christ. He came into the world as a man, and he was tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he was without sin. He was mistreated, abandoned, betrayed, and abused, yet his heart remained pure. He never responded sinfully in his thoughts or his words or his actions. Never, never once. Think about it. Be honest with yourself. We love to blame things outside of us for our sin, don't we? In reality, when we fall to temptation, is it not because of the sin that's in our own heart? We go to websites and movies and other media that we shouldn't because we love what we find there. We say or write demeaning or disrespectful things because we love the gratification of that superiority or that self-righteousness that it gives us. We respond in vengeful anger because we think so highly of ourselves that we hate anything that hurts our pride. We respond with fear or depression because in reality we love our own glory or our own comfort more than we do truth or righteousness. But there's a positive side to this. The positive side is that the sins of others around us and the sins of others against us do not control what's in our heart. And because of the new heart being created in us by the Holy Spirit, the sin within our hearts does not have to control us either. So the second consideration is we can control what comes out of our hearts. Remember, I'm talking about thoughts, emotions, desires, what we are attracted to, what our impulses are. We can control them. And I know we're getting in the nitty-gritty here because I know there are many of you here, many of us here that Even Christians, we live in defeat. Like, ah, why do I keep falling to this sin? Why do I continue to think that way or keep getting angry and lashing out? Why am I so depressed when I know I'm supposed to have joy? Why do I love this thing even though the Bible says it's wrong? I feel like I have no control, right? Well, there are two ways that we can control what's in our hearts. The, most, the typical way that we think of is the typical self-control route, right? Which essentially is intercepting those bad thoughts and emotions when they come and stopping them before they can come out of us as bad, you know, words or actions or attitudes. And while this is necessary and important, even a part of maturity, uh, it still doesn't impact you at the level of the heart. It doesn't go deep enough. And so the second way, and this is what I want you to see today. The second way that we control what comes out of our heart is at the source, and it's to change our heart altogether. And we do this, we change our heart by changing what we love. You change your heart by changing what you love. And of course, 
As I said before, by changing what you love, you change what you worship. And so, this begins for Christians with a supernatural work of the Holy Spirit. And note that this isn't necessarily just the changing your love part, because unbelievers do this all the time, actually. It's the problem for non-believers is that when they change what they love, the only option they have is to devote themselves to another idol. They go from idol to idol, working so hard to meet this standard and that standard, to meet the demands of that idol, thinking that the next one, maybe this next one, will fulfill me. It doesn't matter what it is, though. Money, pleasure, success, even things like family or social service. These loves will all leave you the same, unsatisfied and empty and stuck in your sin. But for Christians, the Holy Spirit changes what we love. And now we have the supernatural ability to devote ourselves to God. Therefore, our response is not to keep working harder and white-knuckle it, in order to make ourselves better. Our approach is to deny ourselves and to trust in Christ and to focus more and more and more on our wonderful, merciful Savior. And so I don't want to leave this point until I say a little bit about what this looks like in our our day-to-day lives. Like, what, what does it look like practically to have a pure heart? So here are some examples of what that means. So first of all, the pure in heart are fully devoted to God. They have undivided, uncontaminated loyalty and faithfulness to God. They don't let their hearts hold on to anything that might cause them to defile their hearts. So when it comes to things that they're willing to sacrifice in order to love God, everything is on the table. Everything. There is nothing in this world that someone who's pure in heart is not willing to give up in order to love God. Also, the pure in heart do not put things that glorify sin or tempt them to sin in front of their eyes or in their ears. And note, this isn't because they don't want to be tempted. It's because they don't love those things anymore. They don't love those anymore. The pure in heart also are quick to assume the best and others' motives, and are slow to condemn them. They assume the best because they worship an all-knowing God, and they know that they're not it. We don't know what are in people's hearts. And they're slow to condemn because we worship a God who came to the world to restore us, not to condemn us. So if I can put it in a more culturally relevant way, Christians are not in the business of cancellation. We are in the business of restoration and edification. Also, the pure in heart, forgive and do not hold on to bitterness. This is perhaps, in my mind, one of the hardest ones, uh, and that's because some of us have been hurt very badly, and some of us have been mistreated or even abused in horrible ways. But remember, when the Savior that we love hung on the cross, battered and beaten and mocked and hated, he didn't call down a curse. He did not become jaded 
or bitter or even fearful, he called down forgiveness. And so I hope that you understand that these things are meant to encourage you. These things are not impossible for a Christian. Remember the gospel? If you believe in Christ, you have the Holy Spirit of God inside of you, and he will give you the power to do all these things. Lean on him. You need to continually focus on the one whom you love by praying to him, reading his word, by gathering with his people, and obeying his instructions. See, we gather with each other and disciple each other and admonish each other and, you know, we are here together so that we all might grow to be more like our Savior, the one who was truly pure in heart. And so if you're a member of NCBC, here's some questions for you to think about. How are you doing in your devotion to God? How are you doing in participating in the ministry of reconciliation or restoration? How are you doing in forgiving others and not holding on to bitterness? How are you doing in gathering with other Christians in order to grow in purity together? So let me encourage you with a couple more verses about the blessing of a pure heart. Romans 6.17 says, But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And in John 7.38, Jesus says, Whoever believes in me, as Scripture has said, out of his heart, will flow rivers of living water. That brings us to point two. The hope of seeing God. So our verse says that the reason the pure in heart are blessed, present tense, now, is because they will see God, future tense. Just as in the other Beatitudes, there is a present blessedness that comes from the hope that we have of an eternal blessing or an eternal reward through faith in Christ. Excuse me. But just like the others, this fulfillment of the future hope actually begins right now as well. So we'll talk about both of those. But the amazing hope that we have, if we are pure in heart, is that we will get to see God. And if you're not fully grasping why this would be a big deal, let me explain. You remember all the stuff I was saying about the temple and about how you couldn't approach God if you were unclean? Well, the reason uh, that all that temple stuff was set up was to make a point to us is that sinners like us cannot be in God's presence. Remember, this is the presence that, in a theological sense, is being in a right relationship to God. So sinners can't be in a right relationship to God. The first reason is because God does not allow anything that is impure in his presence. He's pure. He is holy. He can't allow that. Second is we're not even able to look on such purity or else we would be consumed. There are several stories in the Old Testament that convey that fact. Uh, one of the, when the first time the Israelites were in the desert and they were at Mount Sinai, they couldn't even pass a certain border or else they would be consumed when they were meeting with God on the mountain because of his holiness, because of his purity. So therefore, the fact that a sinner could somehow be pure and enter God's presence without fear, the fact that we can be pure and enter God's presence without fear 
is one of the most incredible things imaginable. This is the power of the gospel. Because Jesus Christ died and purified our hearts with the blood that he shed on the cross for our sins. We have the hope of eternal life in God's presence through his resurrection. Revelation 22, starting in verse 3, says, No longer will there be anything accursed. This is speaking of the throne room of heaven. But the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. Night will be no more, and they will need no light or lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign with him forever and ever. We will see his face. And for those who are pure in heart, who are fully devoted to God, this is the ultimate satisfaction of our truest and deepest desire. That's what we were created for. We will truly have what we love most forever. We get to have it. All of our hopes will be fulfilled and realized in a way that we can't even imagine right now. Our faith will turn to sight. Our fears will be gone. Our pain will cease. Our doubt will be destroyed. As the scripture says, he will be our God and we will be his people. We will know him on a whole new level and we will behold his glory. What an amazing gift. But then, there is the part that begins to be fulfilled right now. What is that? Well, I think the way that uh, seeing God manifests itself right now is literally in the fact that we start to see God everywhere. Personally, I'm a nature lover. I like to hike, be out in the woods where people are not, and glory at God's marvelous creation. Um, Psalm 19 says, the heavens declare the glory of God. So when you look up, think of that. But this doesn't just hold true for nature walks. You can see God's fingerprint on any area of life. Again, personally, I'm, I'm kind of a wannabe science nerd. Wannabe because I don't know that much, but I know enough to like think it's really cool. Um, but it's hilarious to me how hard atheistic scientists work to explain things without God, right? It's like all matter and time and space just exploded out of an infinitesimal speck for no reason. We can't figure it out. I can. It's like life on earth just popped out of nowhere. And their best postulate for that is that an alien brought it here. Well, you can see where I see God in that. And, I mean, it, it goes for any field. If you want to know how to see God in technology, talk to Key. He tells me about it all the time. I'm dead serious. <laughs> but we also see God when we look back into our past, or really into the past, for that matter. We start to realize all the ways that God has been orchestrating things in order to bring us to where we are, in order to accomplish his purposes. And all we can do is be stunned and praise him for his outlandish mercy and grace and his infinite wisdom. We also see God when we think of our future. All of a sudden, every decision we make, every goal we set, every hope we have, whether it's our family, our job, where we live, what we like to do, it all revolves around God. 
we also see God in Scripture. While many may look at this book and just see an old piece of literature written by a bunch of dead guys, we see this as the very word of God, inspired by the Holy Spirit from beginning to end. Our very lifeblood. It's the lifeblood of our souls, and we can't get enough of it. We also see God in the church. We get a glimpse of heaven every Sunday uh, when we gather together for worship. When you are in a vibrant, spirit-filled, word-centered church, you can see God in the way that we interact with each other, the way we encourage each other, the way we love each other, the way we forgive each other, and the way we bear each other's burdens. Also, we start to see the image of God in all the people around us. And when this happens, people stop looking like rivals to us, and they start looking more like precious jewels of immense value. And I don't just mean the people that we like. I mean the people that we don't like, the people that don't like us. And even them, we begin to rejoice when they rejoice and mourn when they mourn. Lastly, we ultimately see God in our salvation. And this brings us full circle. We have no hope of salvation except for faith in Jesus Christ. But faith in Jesus Christ gives us a hope that we could not have imagined before. Eternity in God's presence where we will see him as he is. I hope that you trust him to purify your heart today. My friends, the blessing of the pure in heart is the power of the gospel. And our hope is to see God's face for all of eternity. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we are so awed by your greatness, by your holiness, by your wisdom, by your purity. You are so pure that you can't be defiled. You clean other things. Lord, and we are so amazed and grateful that you would send your Son in order that our sinful hearts might be made pure. Lord, that is our hope. Lord, we look forward to the day when all the sin that was there from our past life is cleaned out and we can see you face to face and every tear will be wiped away from our eyes. Oh Lord, that day, let that day be on our minds all the time as we go about the decisions we make, the people we spend our time with, the way we read your word and live out your word and live in community with each other. Lord, we praise you for your purity and your holiness. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.